0: Thank you, Susanna. Good afternoon. Okay, well, what was all that about? I wonder if that's popped into your head as we read through this um, chapter. Um, at the end of a long series in 1 Corinthians, um, we started our series on the 5th of September 2021, and here we are, 20-something sermons later, chapter 16. Um well, don't tell Sam this, but um, when I saw I was on the rotor down for this one, I was thinking, what, what am I going to say about, about this chapter? Um, well, you'll be pleased to know that I very quickly got over that, and I've loved looking at these verses together. And as we've gone through this, this epic letter in 1 Corinthians, we've seen this struggling and flawed church marked by divisions and self-interest and we've seen Paul's longing for them to be turned around to be redefined to be transformed by the gospel into living out self-denying others-focused sacrificial love and for them to to live in the light of the hope the glorious hope of the resurrection as we've been thinking about in the last few weeks But in this last chapter, as he gets to the end of this letter, he does more than just simply set out some travel plans and talk about how he's going to get a collection to the poor organized. He wants them to see that as a church, they are part of something bigger, much bigger than just themselves. And he's going to hold out examples of the self-sacrificial love that he's been calling them to throughout the letter. So I hope as we, as we go through, we'll see that he's challenging our assumptions. He's going to challenge our assumptions about giving, about the importance of giving. He's going to challenge our expectations about the nature of, of gospel ministry. And he's going to challenge our assumptions about what's most important in the character of, of leaders and in leadership. So as we go through this chapter, we'll 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 see that we, we can draw threads together f- from throughout this letter. Um, so up on the screen, um, I've I'm, uh, the, the next one. Here we go. Oh, that's it. The um, here's, here's the, the kind of three headings for how we're going to think about this uh, this chapter this afternoon. The importance of giving, the nature of gospel ministry and the character of of gospel, um, loving leadership. Uh, So let me pray as as we start out on that. Heavenly Father, uh, how we need you. Uh, We need you more than we realise, in so many ways. You are so kind, so good. And you're a God who speaks. You're alive. You're... We worship a risen saviour and uh, we thank you that you've given us your word we thank you that we have your your spirit inside us and we pray that you would bring these words written so long ago in such a a different context would you bring them alive to us this afternoon would you show us how these these truths these principles um, this heart of paul how that impacts on us today here in Worcester Park. So please, Lord, would you use this time for your good eternal purposes? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now before we, we get on in, I, I know how you love a good map. Um, you had a sneak preview of it just, just then, but um, here we are. Um, it's, it's helpful to have a bit of context as to his travel plans and what he's hoping to do, and all of those kind of things. It's helpful to have it sort of visually so we can get a sense of, of what, what's happening. So, Paul is writing from Ephesus on the um, west coast of what is now Turkey. Um, he'd been there a little while, and you can read about his time in Ephesus in, in Acts 19. Um, but here in, in, in 1 Corinthians um, 16, verse 8, we see that uh, he wants to stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost. So going by what he says here and from what we know in Acts, we can date this around about uh, the spring of either AD 54 or AD 55. And as he sets out in this chapter, his plan is to stay there in Ephesus for the moment and we'll come on to exactly why he wants to stay uh, a bit later on. So he, he wants to stay there for the moment and then head north up the coast and uh, set off from Troas and visit churches that he planted throughout Macedonia in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. Uh, after visiting them and encouraging them, he wants to um, head south to Ikea, um, not Ikea, Ike- and, uh, and visit the Corinthians And hopefully spend um, a good chunk of time with them. Have a look at verse 7. For I do not want to to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Actually as you read through uh, his final words in this letter. You get this this sense of his genuine love for them. He doesn't want to do a sort of whistle stop tour. He's after genuine uh, relationship. It's, it's important to him. Genuine, deep relationship. And it runs right throughout this chapter. Look at how it ends. The very last verse. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. In verse 24. So you get this sense of, of his love for them. And his desire to, to, for strong relationship with them. But you also get the sense... That, that Paul knows that it's the Lord who's the one who is sovereign and the Lord who's the one in control. And actually, as you read right through the book of Acts, you'll see it's, it's not the case that Paul and, and the other apostles come up with their amazing ideas and their strategic plans and they just present them to God for him to rubber stamp them and off they go. Not, not at all. Uh, in verse 6 here, perhaps I will stay with you. He says, verse seven, if the Lord permits, he's tentative as he as he makes these plans because he knows the Lord is sovereign. And it's the Lord who's working out his plans and his purposes and that he, Paul, the other apostles are just along for the ride trying to keep up with what God is doing as he builds his kingdom, builds his church. Uh, we 'll we'll come back to it, but it' it 's striking the priority of relationship for Paul that we see here, and the priority of of being in tune with where the Spirit is leading and that kind of posture of humility um, obeying the Lord and, and going where the Lord wants him to go and now also by way of context um to st- to set up um, the first couple of verses. There's been a severe famine at the time of of Paul writing this in Jerusalem and surrounding area, and the Jewish Christians are in desperate need. And it's that that um, prompts him to to write to them in verse. Uh, so as we see from verses um, one and two, the first few verses of of our chapter here, that the context is of this famine and his desire to. To send money, to send aid to the Jewish Christians uh, going through um, horrific times here. So, that, so our first point uh, as we look at this chapter together, we're going to look at the importance of giving. The importance of giving. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now, I don't know whether this is a particular English thing or if it's just an English church's thing, but we, we tend to be not very good at talking about money and not very good at talking about giving in particular. But Paul, and actually the New Testament as a whole, has no such embarrassment about talking about giving. And I want us to see this afternoon that, that actually our giving is much more important than perhaps we might first think. Is much more theologically significant than perhaps we, we might first think. Notice how he starts in verse 2. On the first day of every week. Well, What happened on, on the first day of every week back then? That was when Christians went to church. That's when they they gathered together to break bread together, to pray, to to devote themselves to the teaching and preaching of the word. So do you see what what Paul's saying on the first day of every week? He's, He's saying our giving and our giving to the poor is to be an integral part of our worship together as a church. I don't know about you, but, but what, what often happens is that we, when it comes to giving and, and that kind of thing, we, we can sort of set up some direct debits and standing orders and sort of forget that they're set up and running and not really pay them much more attention. That's not the idea of, of what's going on here in, in Paul's mind. Actually, for Paul, our giving is an integral part of, of our worship. But secondly, our giving is important because it's an an expression of our gospel partnership. An expression of our our gospel partnership. Again, in these chapters, it's it's, it's striking the sense of partnership that there is here. As as Paul speaks of churches in different parts of, uh, of the world. And and there's a real sense that Paul wants to grow and develop this sense of of gospel partnership amongst the churches that that he's started and that he's planted. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. Look how how warmly he describes their their greetings and, and their love for one another. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord so does the church that meets at their house all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings greet one another with a holy kiss there's a real warmth and depth to these relationships for these churches in different in different places for Paul churches need to have this kind of interdependent relationship with each other interdependent. Churches are, are not islands cut off from everyone else and just concerned about themselves and their own issues and never have anything to do with that island over there or this church or just, just navel-gazing, just, just us. That is not what the New Testament holds out as um, church, as the kind of pattern for churches. Rather, churches are to be interdependent. Now, what do I mean by that? It means we're to know and live out that we need one another, that we are united together in Christ. Even though we're different churches scattered around, we are one church in Christ. And for Paul, one of the greatest expressions of that gospel partnership is giving financially to those in need. And it's clear from... Elsewhere in the New Testament, that uh, he, he's wanting to get a significant financial gift from, from all of his churches to give to the brothers and sisters in such dire straits in Jerusalem. Now for those in, in Corinth, in this church he's writing to, majority of them would have been Greek. Paul is asking them to give to people they will likely never meet. People they have likely never met before either. People who are ethnically, culturally totally different to them. But people for whom they are brothers and sisters in Christ nevertheless. And for Paul, this is a significant gift. Because it's from Gentiles, non-Jews, to Jewish Christians. And for him that takes on a theological significance too. Although he doesn't get into that uh, quite, here in, in chapter 16. You can head to Romans 15 and elsewhere to kind of see how he teases that out more. But do you get the sense of, of what he's saying? Our giving is more important than we realise. It's challenging, isn't it? Now, as we think about uh, giving, I want us to, to notice in passing the, the principles he lays out for, for giving here in verse 2. There's three Ps. They'll uh, come up on the screen. Three Ps. It's a priority. It's planned. And it's proportional. If you see the, the, the principles he outlines to these guys in terms of, of how they're to go about their giving. It's a priority. We've talked already about the importance of giving. But notice that he says he asks them to give on the first day of the week. Not at the end of the week. Not giving out of the leftovers of once you've paid for everything else, all the other important stuff and what have I got left? Okay, all that will do. On the first of the week is to be a priority when it comes to arranging our giving. We, it's the first fruits of our wages, not the leftovers at the end. So it's a priority. And it's planned, secondly, our second P. It's planned. On the first day of every week, put something aside, store it up, he says. It, it's not some sort of ad hoc, slightly chaotic, when I remember, oh yeah, I'll. It's ordered, it's structured, it's planned. Now, for those of you who are accountants in the room this afternoon, I guess I'm preaching to the choir on that one. Of course, giving's got to be ordered and structured. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it's a priority, it's, it's planned, and it's proportional. That was a bit of a struggle for a third P. But um, what I mean by that is it's in keeping with your income, he says. In keeping with your income. So give. And that works. Both ways. If if you don't have much, don't give in such a way that you're going to put yourself in real harm. But at the same time, if you've got, if you're doing well, you've got lots. Don't just give a little. Let's make sure our giving is proportional. Now we've we've mentioned already in the service um, the the what's happening nationally and well internationally. Fuel prices. Energy prices, inflation, cost of living increases. Times are, are really tough financially for an awful lot of people and look set to be for a while. So please don't mishear me commanding or compelling you to give. That's actually contrary to, to what the Bible says about how and, and why we should give in the first place. Uh, have a look at what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Um, you don't have to turn to it, it'll, here it is on the screen. Here's, look, look at what Paul says. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as, as we've seen already, our giving is an integral part of, of our worship our giving should, should flow from our worship um, to the Lord. And later on uh, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians as well, as, as he circles back to, to giving and, and to this gift in particular, he comes back to it in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians. Um, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. We get this incredible verse. Here's our motivation for, for why we should give. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Aren't they incredible words? Now, this afternoon, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Perhaps you're investigating what this Christianity lark is all about. Um, Well, it's great that you're here. And we're not going to pass a bucket round or, or, or anything like that. We're, we're not going to force you or, or anyone to give. That's, that's not we're, what we're about. I want you to see that Christians don't give to charity, give to the poor to make themselves feel better or to earn spiritual brownie points. We give because our saviour first gave everything for us. To forgive us to change us to to transform our hearts and and our motivations and, and and everything so because he first loved us so so we love so we give those of us who are Christians here this afternoon I wonder when was the last time you spent some time thinking about how you organize your giving um, Maybe later today. Uh, have a look through your standing orders and remember what you're giving to, or, or yeah, just just spend a bit of time you and the Lord, and and think about the priority of giving, the importance of it, and resolve to be planned, proportional, and generous, as just as He's been generous to you. May I? briefly put forward a a couple of ways that we can specifically give to the poor in in, in the communities around us. So up on the screen there, I've just got a picture of um, the CAP logo, Christians Against Poverty, and um, the Epsom and Yule Food Bank as well. Just I want to hold up as as two fantastic uh, initiatives who are in need of help. And Epsom and Yule Food Bank is 10 years old their vision is to put themselves out of business because they, they long for a day when nobody needs to visit a food bank. The reality is there's increasing need. They're doing fantastic work, but, then, but the needs are great. Um, I, I help out there on, on Tuesday mornings. And there are lots of ways that we can give and contribute to what's going on at the food bank there. Food donations is, is one way. On Sundays we have a, a box where um, if during the week you've got some, you get some sh- shopping and you'd like to donate it, you can plop it in that box and, I, and, I, and I'll take it with me over to the, the food bank. Um, but they're also in need of uh, financial donations and donations of, of time as well. There's, there's lots of way to, to, to give and to get involved with the food bank. And the same for the Christians Against Poverty Debt Centre in, in Kingston and Wimbledon. Um, CAP, Christians Against Poverty, is a national charity, works with local churches all around the UK. I think there's about 500 or so debt centres uh, working through local churches to help lift people out of, um, of, of, of problem debt. Um, the lockdown's been tough for, the, for our local um, Cap Debt Center, and and they're in need of um, regular financial givers and one-offs and, and that kind of thing. So may I commend those to you, as well as as great ways that that we can partner in the gospel with other churches and other Christians, and and give to help the poor. So we've we've talked about the importance of giving. We're going to move on to to thinking about what Paul has to say about the nature of gospel ministry. The nature of gospel ministry. And have a look at verses 8 and 9. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me or just in these couple of verses, we get a fascinating insight into Paul's understanding of the nature of gospel ministry. We've noticed already Paul's posture of submission to to God's will and to follow the leading of his spirit. And that is why he's, he's staying in Ephesus. Because a great door for effective work has opened up. But there's two sides to that. There's a great door for effective work that's opened up, but there is many who oppose me, he says as well. Now, in Acts 19, I encourage you to have a look at that chapter later on. We get an insight as to exactly what was going on in Ephesus at that time. I've got a picture here of a lecture theatre and a small little statue. It, it's, uh, yeah, so from verses 23 to 29 in particular, Luke tells us about a silversmith called Demetrius who made um, little silver shrines to Artemis and brought in lots of business for the, for the craftsmen there. The gospel has just taken hold of, of Ephesus and, and that place. So many people were becoming Christians. It's just transforming the community, transforming the the, the culture. And Demetrius gets together all the other silversmiths and says, look here, boys, we've got got to do something. We're going to go out of business. Everybody's turning to the true God instead of our nice statues. And so riots come up. There's chaos and violent oppositions. And um, a, a great crowd, a great mob, go to the theatre and chant for two hours, Luke tells us. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, so just in that, in that small little snapshot, you get a, an, an amazing sense of what we see again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. That The pattern we see of incredible opportunities, <clears throat> of the gospel breaking in and transforming but of violent opposition at the same time and we might assume that if well, if god's at work surely it's all going to be plain sailing isn't it well no the pattern as as we've said again and again throughout the new testament throughout the book of acts is that there is something irresistible and unstoppable About the gospel, about the work of the Holy Spirit bringing transformation and life and hope and and changing. But there is also fierce opposition from those who want to stamp out the gospel and stand against all that's going on. And that was true then. And that's true today too. The nature of gospel ministry, Paul says uh opportunities and opposition the two go hand to hand hand in hand so be warned but be encouraged and let's trust in the lord through it all finally in his uh, final instructions paul moves on to the character of of gospel love and and of In particular, of of loving leadership. In this final section, Paul holds up examples that he wants them to follow. And he sets out his priorities of of what to look for in the character of um, leaders uh, that you are to submit to. Just as with money and giving, he's going to challenge our assumptions about what's important. Have a look, first of all, at verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. I wonder what you make of, that, of those list of, of commands. Sounds like um, something you'd expect a drill sergeant to be shouting at his new recruits. Or maybe if you watched um, Gladiator recently, it's something that um, Russell Crowe shouting to his men before they go and fight the Goths or whoever it was they were fighting. For many people today that's this is their picture of, of what leadership should be all about. perhaps the culture of the churches um, that, that, that in the circles that we move in in kind of reformed conservative evangelical world perhaps this is what we are, the the culture that we, wants our leaders to be like but the problem is on its own verse thirteen it is a dangerous and distorted picture because the full picture comes when you add in the vital words of chapter of verse 14 into the mix as well verse 14 these these four crucial words do everything in love do everything in love if we if we miss out one of these verses in the way we exercise our leadership or, or live out our Christian lives, we we can get into real danger. Some of us here this afternoon, perhaps, have first hand experience of the harm and suffering caused by abuse of power from church leaders. Verses like verse thirteen. On their own can be twisted by leaders to, to justify their abusive bullying and coercion. And we need to call it out for what it is. Wrong and, 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 and evil. But as you look down that, that list in verse 13. You can see how important it was in the context of what was going on in the church of Corinth. There's a, there's a real need for them to stand firm. Against the false teaching, against the false teachers denying the resurrection, playing down the, the centrality of the cross. There's a need for them to be on guard on, uh, against the blatant sin that was there, damaging and ruining the lives of families and individuals. There's, there's a need for them to be courageous in calling that sin out and in standing for unity amidst all the divisions. But they're to do all of those things in love. Love must be the the central unifying thing as they exercise all all, all of those things. Perhaps you've um, heard the phrase tough love. Um, Often I think that that phrase is is what abusers have used to describe and justify their their behaviour. I suspect that in our culture, in, in our churches, what we need to hear is, is not so much the, the standing firm bits, but the do everything in love bits. And verse 22. This is huge as well, isn't it? If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be, be cursed. Come, Lord. Love for Christ must be right at the heart of, of all that we do as, as, we, as we live out the gospel. And if we're in positions of leadership, must be central to the, to the way we lead and, and shepherd. Now, having set out the principles of um, the kind of gospel-loving leadership, he finishes off showing some examples for them to emulate Saying, if you like, here's the embodiment of of what I've been talking about. This is what it looks like in in a person. Have a look at verses 15 and 16. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. That's great, isn't it? Um, the household, the, the, the family of stephanus they were the first converts, he says. And they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Verse 18, they refreshed my spirit as, as well as yours. So just in a couple of verses, we get such a great picture of this family, of Stephanus and, and his family. What is it that he picks out about Stephanus and his family? It's that they're charismatic personalities. That they were naturally strong leaders. and That they were able to just get stuff done. They were wonderful communicators. They were extraordinarily gifted. No. What does he pick out? They were devoted to the service of the Lord's people. Now in the context of a church plagued by division plagued by self-centred thoughtlessness, to the extent that, it, that people were even suing each other in that church, how this family would have just shone out like stars in, in that setting, wouldn't they? With their selfless, sacrificial love, others focused, seeking the good of others before themselves. These are the ones who, who deserve special recognition. And so often these are the ones who who never get it. Now as I've been um, reflecting on this uh, passage this week, one of the things that kept popping into my head was conversations that I've had with various people um, in in, in past weeks where they've said something along the lines of Adam over there is great, isn't he? And I've said, yes, he is. Uh, And he'll hate me saying this. Um, But as I think of somebody who embodies what what Paul recognizes in stephanus Self-sacrificial love and service of God's people. I think Adam really demonstrates that. If you knew the amount of people that he meets up with and encourages and comes alongside. You'd be amazed. He's devoted to serving the Lord's people. And it's right for us to to recognise what a huge blessing he is to us as a church family, and to follow his example, as he follows the example of Christ. Now, it's I could pick on lots of you here. You well, don't pick me, um, but that's that's great, isn't it? That that uh, yeah, we we have some wonderful examples of 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 Christians devoted to serving the Lord's people. Let's keep going with that. Let's excel in that. Uh, one of the commentaries I read um, had, had, a, had a great quote that's really stuck with me as I've um, been thinking about it. And here it is up on the screen. One of the most effective testimonies to the reality of the risen Christ is the servant lifestyle of a Christian family. Isn't that great? Um, so as a, as a family, how could you cultivate, uh, a servant lifestyle together as a, as a family on mission together? How could you use your, your home, your time, your, your rhythms, your money? Uh, Priscilla and Aquila are, um, commended here, uh, In verse 19, for for how they use their home self-sacrificially. Think of um, the Huttons or or the the Willers. How free and generous they are with with their home for the service of of the Lord's people. Well, what, what does that look like for you? How could you, as a family together, cultivate this kind of servant lifestyle? How could you reshape your home, your time, your rhythms, your money, so that, that it's not all focused on, on you, but focused on, on being a blessing and loving uh, other people around. Maybe spend some time later today to, to have a think, maybe even over a meal together. Put the question out there and, and, uh, and talk about it together. Well, as we, um, as we finish up our time, I want to come back to uh, what, Paul's words from, from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, these, these brilliant, brilliant words, as, as he comes back to, to love, to describing the kind of love that he's calling them to, to live out and to, um, yeah, to, to live out amongst themselves. Let, let's, let me read these verses love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it is not self-seeking it is not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth it always protects always trusts always hopes always perseveres aren't they great words aren't they so different the way our culture thinks about love and uh, as I look at this list perhaps as you look at this list too we realise just how far short we fall how much we need the grace of God the reality is the only way we're able to love like this is because Jesus first loved us like this Jesus Is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He did not consider equality with God. Something to be used to his own advantage. But he humbled himself. Became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Isn't that good news? Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. What a savior we have! What a what a lord we serve! Let's come to him now and, and pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your incomparable love. Thank you that you poured out your life unto death for us, for our sin, taking our punishment, the punishment we deserved. You took it all, and you've washed us, you've cleansed us, you've given us a new heart and a new start, not because of anything desirable or, or good about us, but because you are kind. Because you love us, because you are patient, because because of your love. Lord Jesus, would you help us to try and get our heads around the height, breadth, width, depth of your amazing love for us. Would you transform us day by day by your Holy Spirit. Would you help us to love like you love. Would you give us your compassion. Would you help us be generous? Would you help us be selfless? Help us, Lord, we pray, for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.